Hello, welcome to this week's Opening Bell podcast. I'm Boxing News Editor Tris Dixon, joined by John Denon. Uh, John, how's it going? Pretty good, you know, very busy, working very hard, as always. Well, you do say that, John, but what exactly are you doing this afternoon? I'm putting together a feature on James DeGale uh, for next week's issue. Okay, James DeGale, obviously the um, the third man in the trifecta that is uh, DeGale... Frotch and Groves. Um, you know, obviously we've had DeGale Groves, we've had Frotch Groves, and we've got the second instalment of that coming along. How do you think James DeGale would do with Carl Frotch? You know, he, he might do well. If you look, you know, he's quite a stylish, slick boxer, moves well, he's physically strong. Um, you know, he could have the style to give Carl Frotch p- problems. I mean, it's it's hard to look past Frotch Groves because I'm not sure anyone really knows how how that's going to turn out. But um, you know, slick boxers can give Frotch trouble. Andre Durrell, Andre Ward, obviously. Um, James DeGale could could have the scar, the style to give him real problems. Okay, interesting. The guys you mentioned obviously are both uh, Olympic medalists as well. Andre Durrell won bronze. Andre Ward won gold and James DeGale won gold as well. So there's a bit of a pattern there. Hopefully we'll get to find out one way or another. Uh, although, of course, I don't think we mind a rematch between Groves DeGale either. Um, so hopefully those those guys can all fight one another. Um, that's what we'd like to see. You talk about slick and stylish boxers. This weekend we have the return to action of one Manuel Marquez who's up against... Uh, Mighty Mike or Mahai Mike Alvarado. Um, Alvarado, we've got a great feature in the magazine from Thomas Jabezi uh, documenting the highs and lows of Mike. Um, Marquez, though, is very much the A side of this pr- uh, promotion um, that's already sort of done 12 or 1,000, already sold about 10 or 12,000 seats. Um, John Marquez, um, any real signs of decline with that uh, recent defeat to Timothy Bradley? It, it was it was a hard one because it was a close fight, and you know at the time you thought it was more Bradley boxed really well to beat him, but Marquez is old. What is he over forty? You know how long can he can he keep on going for? But I thought Bradley Marquez was a very very high level, high level in terms of skill and intensity. Um, and I'm not sure if Alvarado is quite at that sort of in Juan Manuel Marquez's class. It's funny, you talk about intensity. Obviously, Marquez had a lot of intense battles over the years, which adds to his ring age. You know, we've asked a panel of experts uh, this week what Marquez's best performance was, and a couple of the answers have been his um, knockout win over Pacquiao in the fourth fight. But when you trace, try to trace back any decline in Marquez, if you look at the Bradley loss where he was second best for the majority of the fight, certainly more than 50% of the fight. And you look back to the Pacquiao fight as well. Marquez was taking a beating in that Pacquiao fight, in the fourth fight, and then he obviously produced that one shot out of nowhere. Some people obviously are calling that his best performance, and I, I might be inclined to do that too, based on the outcome, based on the result. As an overall performance though, he was taking a pasting. Um, and you could chart chart the decline even back from fur- further than that. But those last two fights, when you look at the Pacquiao win and the Bradley fight, it's not a guy who's been dominant, is it? No, no, it's not. It's it's interesting when you think of that. I mean, maybe that knockout punch is the the best punch he's thrown in his career. But um, 
yeah, it's interesting to think in terms of overall performance. What was better, what the third Pacquiao fight or the the second beating Barrera was another great win. Um, so yeah, he must be. He seems to be getting older and and more bitter as well because he didn't take defeat well against Bradley. Um, so I just wonder if he can keep on going. Okay, the guy he's fighting, Mike Alvarado, something of a wild card. Um, you never quite know what you're going to get with him. He says he only trained three weeks for um, for the fight with Provodnikov, which, um, blimey, I think I could go and camp for three years and not be ready for Provodnikov at the end of that. So taking that for granted in front of his home fans um, probably hasn't gone down too well at home. Um but there's some people who think that Alvarado's in with a real chance. Uh, he's put himself in a training camp away from his hometown uh, in Colorado. And it's interesting. I mean, Bet- Betway have him um, as 5-1 to one for a stoppage, which I think is quite short, given that Marquez doesn't really get stopped. Um, but they've got Alvarado's t- a 2-1 to one outsider, which is, quite, again, quite narrow. Uh, six to one for Alvarado to outwork um, Marquez, and you've got to think that if he does f- beat Marquez, the only way he's going to do it is if Marquez maybe gets a little bit old and can't keep up with the younger man. Yeah, yeah, but it's hard to think how he's going to do it because Bradley sort of managed to to out counter him to get Marquez to come to him, and that took a lot of sort of nerve and patience, you know. Alvarado can box a bit, but he's not going to outbox Marquez. And then I guess he's just going to try and get get stuck in. But Marquez is such a wonderful boxing style with his with his counter punching that um, it's hard to see. Well, age might beat him, but you know Alvarado on his merits alone might not. You get the feeling with sort of almost any one of these guys, you can keep saying. I remember we were saying about Winky Wright, not a million years ago. Uh, but obviously we still say it about Hopkins, say it about Marquez, Adonis Stevenson, who's preview on writing with Andre from far out in the office now. These guys who are 36, Marquez 40-odd, Hopkins obviously 49. You get the feeling that for some of these guys, they will fall into that cliche of becoming old overnight. But sometimes now when you look at sports science, the technologies, the advances the training, the fact that they're not fighting sort of five times every two months like they did in the old days, um, all of that might count towards their longevity to an extent. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, other than like the beating you mentioned from Pacquiao before he won, you'd think Marquez has the style to last a long time because he doesn't, you know, take too much punishment. But, uh, But we'll see. Yeah, he's not a guy who's been in a war every time. Um... And in fact, that brings me nicely onto the the next part of this. Is uh, I'm off to Wales on on Saturday. Uh, I'm not sure if I've mentioned in a recent podcast, but I was in Las Vegas uh, for a show called The Moment Mayweather Maidana. Um, but I'm looking forward to getting to Cardiff for two reasons. Really, one is last time I was there, I think to watch a fight, I saw Nathan Cleverly getting clubbed uh, to the first defeat of his career against Sergey Kovalov. He returns to action in the nominal main event. Uh, there's also a chance to see Lee Selby. It's been a long time since I've seen him in the flesh um, performing. And then I think the fight I'm most looking forward to, and I don't know if you agree with me on this, is the rematch between Gary Buckland and Gavin Reese. I mean, they put on a, an absolute belter earlier in the year that's quite possibly, despite Crawl and Murray, uh, despite Tommy Coyle's fantastic knockdown thriller 
um, in Hull, I think, earlier in the year. I think Reese Buckland, for me, is the front runner for the fight of the year domestically. Um, I mean, what do, you, what do you make of the rematch? How do you see it going, particularly with Reese, so adamantly talking about retirement? Yeah, I was at the first one, and I did think, um, I actually think, I thought it was a close fight, but I thought Reese might have won it, even though Buckland got the decision. What surprised me is seeing Gavin say he's, this is his last fight and he's going to retire. I, you know, normally I would sort of expect a sportsman to leave his uh, announcement of retirement until until after the event. I'm worried if that's a sign that he's, that you know, Gavin Reese is sort of, you know, now he's got his, now he's looking past boxing, now he's sort of getting over it. Can he match the same intensity that he brought the first time around? It was one of those fights that, that takes a lot out of you because it was, you know, they both fought so hard. It was a real war. So I see it being the sort of the same sort of fight. Um, really exciting one to watch. But I think um, Buckland might be that little bit more relentless and sort of, you know, repeat the win. Okay, I think it's interesting. I spoke to Gary Lockett about this because I wrote the preview in the magazine um, and I wanted to speak to him and see where Gavin's mind was once I'd heard this talk about retirement. And I think the be the thing is he, he said that Gavin's now of an age where he sort of struggles to get through training sessions where he's quite old, uh, got a lot of miles on the clock, being in some hard fights. He's also won pretty much everything there is to win. If you see his Twitter spat with Chris Eubank Jr. this week, um, he knows that he's he's achieved a lot as well. I think there's one thing that I think about this fight with with Reese talking about retirement is, you know, when you're in a training session, and say you've got 12 reps in this set, set, set in this set to go, um, you can see the finishing line and you can push really hard to that finishing line. I wonder if Reese will be like that in the fight, and I wonder if he's going to think this is it. This is my last 12 rounds of my life. I'm going to give it absolutely everything. And I wonder if he can see it in that light and really push towards the end. You know, when sometimes if you're asked to like in the gym or whatever, if you're asked to hold a plank and say for 30 seconds, it's easier to do it than you. someone says, right, get in a plank position now and hold it until they say stop. Even if that position is for 25 seconds, because you know where the end is. Now Reese has the end so firmly in sight and he's almost fixated on it. Do you think that will make it easier for him to give it his all for 12 rounds? I just don't know. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? Um, but then, if the training camp's getting harder, is he getting the same results in the build-up to it? Um, yeah, I suppose if this is his swan song, his final fight, it's at home in Wales. You can see him giving it everything, but it must be so hard to go from world, le you know, European and world level, sort of coming back down to domestic level, almost sort of below, not necessarily below British title level, but at that level, you know, how do you manage to keep the same motivation, the same, you know, the same sort of, you know, fighting fury? It'll be interesting actually to see how Ricky Burns does it. Can he go, how does he go from descending from world level? Can he bounce back or is it, will it be the same kind of thing, sort of slipping further down the, the pecking order? It's interesting actually talking about that because obviously the, the the guy who's not getting all the headlines at the moment is Gary Buckland, who obviously only won the, who who went and won the the first fight. And I mentioned the previous time I was in Cardiff for the Cleverly fight. I think I'm I'm not mistaken thinking Buckland was on that undercard, and he got chilled dramatically by Stephen Smith in one of the worst 
knockouts I was going to say I've seen, but certainly of last year, it was a crunchy knockout, a lovely shot that Swifty walked him onto. And now Buckland's bounced back with a great win over Gavin Reese. I mean, Buckland, talk about credit where it's due for a guy flying under the radar because to come back from that um, Stephen Smith knockout and then beat Gavin Reese and now be the favourite going into the Reese rematch, that's some turnaround, isn't it? Yeah, he's a tough, tough character, isn't he? To come back from that, and the, you know the way he fights, he sort of gives no quarter. He just keeps on going, and um, he's you know he's a long. He's had some hard fights as well. Like he had a war with John Murray a few years ago, which sort of put him on the map. Um, so he seems to. It's pretty remarkable the way he sort of shrugged off that that knockout loss to Stephen Smith. And so I don't think he'll be phased, even though he'll know he's got he's almost bound to have another hard twelve, you know, another hard twelve round fight with with Reese. So um so yeah, I think he could be getting, well, better and better, at least, you know, stronger and stronger. Yeah, I think um you talk about Buckland's hard fights. I remember being there when he won a a, a controversial ten rounder over Henry Castle, who's an old gym mate of mine. And I also remember him, uh, I also remember covering one of his fights on a really good show, Frank Maloney's show, show in Portsmouth, which I think was topped by Dean Francis uh, against Tony Oki. Um, and Buckland actually lost on that bill. I think he lost a six-rounder, might have been eight-rounder, I think a six-rounder to, to Ben Murphy, you know, the, the muscle-bound lightweight from Hove. And again, that was a cracking fight. And, you know, there was some serious punishment dished out in just six rounds. So Buckland's been through the mill. And uh, I think looking at the stars of recent Buckland, it's only fair to say that they'll be going back through the mill um, this weekend. I think, <laughs> pardon me, it looks like being a cracking fight. Which, again, segues on nicely because we've got Steve Kim ringside in California last weekend. And there was an unexpectedly cracking fight between Bermain Stavern and Chris Ariola, uh, Stavern, the new WBC heavyweight champion. I'm not sure I was ever prepared to say that. Um, but do you know what? I mean, we talk about the, the stagnant heavyweight division and this and that. But Stavern's got an exciting style. For me, Tyson Fury's got a potentially exciting style we've seen in some fights. Wilder's got an exciting style. Um, obviously, Chisora's up there and had some exciting fights. Whatever you say about the quality of the heavyweight division... There are matches to be made that can guarantee some real thrills and spills out there now, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've almost got a bit too used to there being boring heavyweight, you know, heavyweight title fights, especially with the Klitschko's dominating because their fights were usually of recent years so one-sided. But um, yeah, like you say, the the, uh, the quality might not be up there with the others, but they're just they've got all the ingredients for you know rough and tumble, exciting fights. You know, I'd like to see Stavern in with Wilder or any of the Brits because you know it would be a good fight to watch. And I'm sure Fury and Chisora is going to be going to be a rumble as well in July. And I might get lambasted for it, but you know, I, there's something about Vladimir against either Tyson Fury or Deontay Wilder that makes me think they're just not regular Klitschko fights. Certainly, I mean, yeah, yeah. It, Wilder, you just because he hasn't fought anyone, you know, at a you know at a higher level than him, you just don't know what he's going to bring. Fury's got that element of craziness that you know he's going to be sort of crazy enough to believe he can win, which is which is the attitude you want to go in with. I mean, that's how Chisora gave Vitali such a hard fight. He wasn't sort of he didn't go in there mentally beaten. Um, and I can't imagine Fury. I can imagine, you know, he's going to have a hard time winning it, but he'll certainly give it everything. 
Um, and Wilder's he's got he's got the power to you know to to change everything with one punch. And as Klitschko gets older, you know, memories of his knockout losses resurface. There'll be a lot of interest if Klitschko was in with either of those. You know, and to be fair, Stavern looked dangerous the way he took out Ariola with that with that right hand. So again, he's suddenly. I mean, Stavern would be so much. That would be a good fight right now, Stavern Klitschko. It would be a heavyweight unification, which is a big, big deal. Um, to, you know, if Klitschko's been fighting people like Leopold, these sort of pointless, inevitable fights, get someone like like, like Stavern in there. Surely people would be interested in that. Though it's weird that um, you know Povetkin was a real credible challenger, and that that turned into a bit of a stinker. Well, you mentioned that. I mean, I've got a feeling, and I hope I'm wrong, because obviously we all want good fights with the best guys, and I think Kubrat Pulev deserves his 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 shot, but I can see Pulev being a similar sort of fight to the Povetkin fight almost. Yeah, so being a bit sort of laboured, not too exciting, but, you know, they're all, I think maybe that's one that Klitschko's just got to get out of the way, and then we can get the interesting ones, the exciting ones, the fights with per- personality, because that's what sort of Klitschko needs. He's very sort of dignified, well-spoken, thoughtful, but it'll be nice to have a bit of a wild man in the other corner to make it a sort of you know an interesting contrast of personalities and a more exciting event to see. Definitely. some interesting. I think there's some really interesting stuff to be done at heavyweight. I really do. Um, and like I said, you know, I'm not sure that we'll be seeing, um, uh, let's say, Ali Frazier or even Foreman Frazier, but... You know, we might get some Lyle stuff going on in there. You know, Ron Lyle was involved in some great stuff. Ernie Shavers too. Um, you know, I've got, I don't know. The, the, I think I think that there's some rich chemistry, not just for the fights, but for the build-ups. And I think fans, hard, hardcore fans and casual fans can really get their teeth into some of those matches. Um, on this side of the pond, John, uh, Derry Matthews uh, went back to the well Um and in fact, he didn't need to go that deep into the well this time because, um, for me, he's, he, he's, he's, he won the vast majority of the rounds against Martin Gethin. In a, in a, it's a fight that um, I thought would be an absolute belter, and it was certainly hard all the way through, and it's not the sort of thing I'd like to do on a Saturday night. Um, but um, it didn't provide the normal Derry Matthews thrills and spills, which, you know, take nothing away from Derry. He boxed well. Uh, led with his jab, but it won't be a fight of the year contender as we expected. Um, what what would you do now if you were Derry Matthews? He he mentioned that he was the best in Britain uh, ahead of Crawler and uh, Kevin Mitchell. Where do you think he figures in that mix? It's interest an interesting one because you think even though he, Matthews did so well against Crawler after that win against Murray that Crawler maybe has has momentum with him on the sort of domestic level British lightweights. Flanagan looked really good in the on the undercard to Derry Matthews, but Matthews has had so many sort of hard fights. He's been hurt and come back. He's lost and just come back. Um, you almost think he, you know he he always needs a bit of a break. But there's so many good British lightweights. I think we want to see the title, you know, keep in circulation. People keep boxing for it. Um, but he's going to have his hands, f- if he fights Terry Flanagan next, which I think is what they're looking to make for the uh, Fury Chisora undercard, he's really going to have his hands full with that one as well. 
you got so like there's there's a plethora like a, a massive amount of of talent in the lightweight division domestically at the moment, and Derry can to can get involved in any of that. Um, I think what's interesting f for me with Derry is for me I think um, Derry is a guy who's lost fights he should have won and won fights he should have lost, and the Flanagan one I could see being a real banana skin, but then if you put him in with someone like a Buckland or or someone else and you know he could, he could do he could could look sensational it's it's always hard to know what you'll get with Derry but one thing is it looks like he's taking his career really seriously these days and um and he appreciates it it won't last forever so we 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 could yet still see the best of Derry Matthews do you think uh i i mean maybe we've seen the best of him but i'm sure we'll still see him in you know some more thrilling fights maybe maybe sort of best fights lie ahead but He's given a lot for uh, sort of our entertainment. Because you were ringside at his fight with Tommy Cole, weren't you? I was, I was. That was like, you know, he really, he just, you know, Cole was all over him and then he dug out this sort of Hail Mary left hook. Um, but then equally, I was surprised to see him being sort of outboxed like that when, and you could see against Gethin, him putting his sort of skills to work. So he can sort of, you know he can box and he can he can get stuck in and have a fight as well. And Buckland would be, you know, that would be another interesting one. Didn't they fight in a prize fighter a few years ago? Yeah. Flanagan beat Matthews in the prize fighter as well, which I think has skewed all of our British lightweight rankings, which we need to take a proper look at as a consequence. So um, Kid Galahad was also in action against um, Fred Morabi. Um, Galahad. He's he's not quite up there with Frampton and Quig yet. How far away do you think he is from them on, on a time scale? Um, you know, I would say, let's say six months. I know that's probably far closer than his, sooner than than his promoter would like. But I would say the advantages with Galahad is he's he's got to U Euro the European title. You know, that's that says something. He's clearly good. You know he's skillful. His punch, you know, his punch power seems to have come on as well. And you know, if Scott Quigg wants a recognisable opponent, at least Kid Galahad. You know, he's been on Channel Five. He's had that sort of that mainstream platform. Um, I'd almost rather see sort of Scott Quigg in with Kid Galahad than uh, you know someone less well known to to a British audience. So I sort of say, yeah, I'd say half a year. Why not? But I think in reality it would be. What twelve to eighteen months? It's probably more what his promoter expects. I think you've seen more fights than anyone else in the office this year. We've mentioned Reese Buckland one. We've mentioned the Tommy Coyle fight where he climbed off the deck and looked to be almost out of it a couple of times. What's the best fight if you had to pick one now? The best fight you've seen this year? Yeah, I mean, I was lucky enough to be at Reese Buckland one um, and Co Coyle Brizuela. If I can pronounce that right, that was completely mental. Uh, Crawler Murray was also meant. Uh, that was a great fight. Hard to choose. I'd probably say professionally, the professional one, best prof pro bout I've been ringside for is probably the Coil one in terms of you know madness because just so many knockdowns and he kept getting back up. Um, the bit of cracking amateur bouts as well though. Uh, Luke Saunders, Ted Cheeseman in London was just great blend of styles a good, good, decent loud little crowd it was good and Fraser Clark and Joe Joyce had a cracking sort of ABA super heavyweight final um, actually you know 
I know they're only am- they're amateur bouts, but it's great action only over three rounds, but it's still uh, good to watch. But so I'll go with the coil one, but I've been lucky enough to be ringside for sort of three three of the five of the year contenders. You and I are going to be at um, Frotch Groves in a couple of weeks' time. Um, I mean, it's getting exciting. I've spoken to both Frotch and Groves this week. You can see um, what they've had to say in in this week's magazine. You'll see that they're on the cover. Um, some, th- I think that preview issue is going to be fantastic. Um, they've no one's pulled any punches in the interviews that we've done with them. There's some really good, insightful, fresh stuff, and some pretty painful reading from both of them. Um, and I understand that some of the guys who've got some of the words in from Paddy Fitzpatrick and a, and a couple of the others involved in the promotion have got some really explosive stuff. So I'm looking forward to that. The thing was, I, I thought some of their recent head-to-heads haven't been as explosive as I thought, but it seems like people are waiting for fight week, and then it's going to really just kick off. I don't know if I'm, I don't know what I'm expecting. I don't know what's going to happen. Do you envisage any severe plot twists between now and May 31st in this ongoing Frotch Grove saga? I can't think what they would be, but I'm sure they're they're bound to come. Like Groves is always surprising. You know, I didn't expect him to whip out his Rubik's Cube at the press conference. <laughs> I wonder where you were going there. <laughs> um, Frotch sort of pushing him away seemed really out of character. Then there's sort of low, that sort of low-key appearance on TV and on their internet Q&A. It was also surprising because you thought it was bound to go off again. So, um, so you know, something's going to happen. You don't know whether Lee Frotch is going to pop up again or, you know, Gingerbread Man is going <laughs> to do something. But um, there's such a there's such an intensity about them, the sort of their characters, the way they're thinking about the fight, the way we know they're going to fight, that um, it's going to be very hard for it not to boil over until they get to until they get to fight night and then at Wembley it's it's going to be electric with you know with all those different elements combined the, the huge crowd it's going to be something you just know it's going to be special let me put something to you I mean Frotch just talked about having some work with a sports psychologist up in up in um, Sheffield where he has the facilities pretty much on tap I think um, and he's talked about the benefits of it and you can see that Groves isn't or hasn't been able to get under his skin <laughs> the way I seem to yesterday um, hasn't been able to get under his skin um, to a, an extent this time certainly since that last press conference where there was the push since then Carl seems to be very measured and stuff Groves has almost sort of been mocking Carl having this sort of almost uh, or having the sports psychology help do you think there's anything to mock in Frotch having sports psychology ahead of this build, ahead of, in the build up for the fight? Not at all. I mean, I'm surprised he hasn't used it sooner. I'm surprised sort of any boxer who can afford to um, doesn't use that kind of thing. So I'd see it as uh, exactly in line with a strength and conditioning coach or having a nutritionist. It's just an extra an extra tool to use. Why wouldn't you use it? I don't think there's any stigma about it. I'm surprised that um, sort of Groves and Paddy Fitzpatrick have have attacked it have have attacked it in the way they have because I don't think it's anything to be ashamed about at all or it, I don't believe it's a sign of weakness um but but yeah it grow but Frotch did seem sort of rattled in his first encounters with Groves ahead of their first fight I wonder if that was more that he just he was just completely caught off guard by the way George was that he didn't look he didn't look at Groves with 
you know, with the respect to see that he was serious competition, that he was going to give him a hell of a fight and he just couldn't sort of compute that there was this sort of cocky upstart just saying, are you going to cry and that kind of stuff. Um, but So maybe, you know, using a, using a sports psychologist is helping him and maybe he's more ready just you know, more ready anyway for knowing what's going to be, what he's going to have to deal with this time around. I do wonder when, when we talk about the sports psychologist side of things, I think that there's an unfair uh, thing in boxing where obviously uh, it's such a macho sport that you cannot afford to show any signs of weakness. And so if you need help to be seen as to be mentally strong, then that's seen as you being weak. And I think this in some ways goes back to the feature I wrote about depression. Um, and that if you need help psychologically, I think you should go and get it. And that's whether it's competitive or otherwise, there's help out there. And Carl went and got his help and it seems to have made him stronger, seems to have made him more confident as a result. He seems to be very happy about where things are. And to quote him, he wishes the fight was this weekend because he can't wait to get, get cracking with it. Um, and I think that's a really interesting thing that you say about Groves and Fitzpatrick, whether they mock it or not, uh, I don't, that doesn't bother me too much. It's just, um, I think people should use it to their advantage, you know. But it's a sport, boxing's such a tough, such a brutal, hard sport. And, you know, I certainly remember before any of my fights, no one talked to me about any kind of pre-fight nerves or anything like that that you'd feel in the changing room or and no one said that, you know, like the day of the fight or the day before the fight, it was going to be really, really tough and that, you know, you wouldn't be able to eat properly and that everyone would be coming up to you saying, when's the fight and have you got any tickets and can we come and, you know, all that pressure that you put on yourself. And this is just for a, just a two-bob amateur fight. You know, now Froch and Groves have this with 80,000 people. And I do wonder who's going to be under the most pressure. I think Cole, as a two-belt champion and making a whole load of money, uh, might have the most to lose materialistically. But Groves, with all the bold talk that he's done, and he's talked up a hell of a fight, he's got to have put a lot of pressure on himself too, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Is he is he someone who's just sort of naturally, you know, mentally strong? He's got he does have this sort of element of craziness to him, like he'll do the unexpected. And he certainly showed in the in the first fight that he can mix it with him. Um but yeah, I just yeah, I, the mind of George Groves is a is a curious place. I just don't know what's going in, in there. But to follow on from what you were saying before, I'd agree absolutely. I don't think using a sports psychologist is a sign of weakness, it's a sign of being professional surely because I don't you know it might not even be about it's not about being strong or weak it's about having the right mental routines planning for things you know how, you know how you bet how best how you best prepare yourself you know all these kind of different elements come into it so I don't think it's this sort of you know hypnotic hocus pocus being traumatized by the number six or whatever that kind of stuff I think it's just uh yeah, it's just a it's just a tool like like any other, and I think everyone can improve. You know, even you know whether it's their strength and conditioning or their nutritioning, or their nutrition. You know, you can improve every aspect, and your mental and your mental game is so important that even if you've got your habits and your routines that you've established anyway, it's something that you can always look at and analyze and find ways of of you know developing yourself. That is a great verb, actually. Can you actually get nutritioning into <laughs> into next week's being active? <laughs> 
Um, in this week's being active, by the way, just in closing, we've, we've uh, or the one we're working on, should I say, uh, we've got some content from Anthony Ogogo. Would you like to put me in the picture of what Anthony's done for Boxing News? Uh, yeah, after he got back from fighting in Vegas, a little show called The Moment, you might be familiar with. Um, we, uh, we got some time with him and he taught us the art of combination punching. So we've got some great sort of step-by-step -step stuff with an Olympic bronze medalist and a and hot professional prospect sort of talking through some combinations he's been working on and stuff that readers can can see and you know practice themselves in the gym okay, great stuff you do say about groves you know penny to be in the thought in the mind of george groves i think you could say that to be honest to be with anyone apart from apart from eddie hearn you could say that with anyone involved in that in that main event with carl frotch with rob mccracken with paddy fitzpatrick and george groves I mean, I can't say I would want to spend 24 hours in the mind of any of them in the build-up to this because the pressure's going to be immense. It's got to be all, pretty much all they're thinking about. You know, we're basically three weeks from the fight and we spent 10 minutes talking about it. Now it's not even it's not even that close. So, But it's coming around quickly and uh, and we'll be there, as I said, and uh, I'm sure there'll be a big Frotch Grow special podcast that week and, uh, and no doubt the week after when we decide uh, or discuss uh, and debate about what's happened. Uh, but until then, uh, thank you very much for joining John and I. Um, much appreciate it. And we'll be back. Uh, some Two of us will be back next week. Uh, which two you can decide. Send, uh, send myself, uh, Matt, John or Danny uh, a tweet. And uh, you guys can pick who's in the chair next week. Thanks a lot for joining us. And we'll see you soon.